me that speaks of the armor of God. A great, great passage that uh, calls on us, as you know, to take on the armor of God, to put on the full armor of God, that word panoply of God, a transliteration of the Greek word. And uh, Paul makes a, a great statement in um, Ephesians 6. There are some hints of that in First Thessalonians and some other places, but uh, the specific passage that we're looking at is Ephesians 6. 10 through 20, and the armor of God, being ready, having spiritual armor for what is obviously a spiritual battle uh, that we face. Fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. This past Tuesday, we looked at several aspects of that great statement from Ephesians 6.15 and talked about being ready, being ready to share the good news and how the good news is just that. It's good news. I'll say more about that today in just a moment in one of the passages that we'll look at. Uh, but our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That is, a, that is a great description of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of of peace. It shares good news about salvation uh, through faith in Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Uh, but it also talks about uh, uh, being ready and we talked a little bit about the the foot coverings and the boots, shoes, sandals, whatever that the first century soldier might wear and how if, uh, if he doesn't have that then he is not going to be an effective soldier. And how the same is true today, that we have to protect our feet and that we need good solid shoes. If you're a runner, you need good solid running shoes. If you're involved in some other sport or activity, uh, working even, you need good work boots or work shoes that will demonstrate uh, that you're serious and that you're capable of doing the tasks that are before you. And so today I want to share a couple stories about that, about having our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Uh, one of them is from the Old Testament, one of them is from the New Testament, and you're probably a little bit familiar with both. Um, and I want us to look at the first, uh, the first story I want us to look at is the one uh, from the Old Testament. And if you want to take a moment to find the book of 2 Kings, it's in 2 Kings chapters 6 and 7. Uh, the dating of the period in 2 Kings 6 and 7 is around 850 B.C., uh, so we're talking about 850, 900 years or so before uh, Jesus was born and lived and died and then the church uh, began. And so these uh, are very difficult days. Um, the days uh, where Elijah and Elisha were the preachers. And in this particular case, specifically, uh, it seems to be towards the beginning of the ministry of Elisha. E-L-I-S-H-A, who took Elijah's place when he was carried off into heaven in such a dramatic way that we read about earlier in the book of 2 Kings. But in 2 Kings chapter 6, it's a very difficult time for the people of God. Very difficult time. We're in the northern kingdom of Israel uh, and their capital city of Samaria. This is, of course, before the Assyrians would take them into captivity uh, about a hundred, less than a hundred years later, maybe about 80 years, uh, well, let's see, it would be, um, it would be over a hundred years later if we're in 850 B.C., 721 
BC was when that took place. Uh, but for now, they're, um, they're having a difficult time. And they're being threatened, not by the Assyrians, who would be the world power, but actually by the Syrians or Arameans, they're sometimes called. And it was a very serious time, a very difficult time. Uh, Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria, and, uh, and he was threatening the king of Israel and the people uh, of God. And it was, a very, it was a very difficult thing. We start reading in uh, 2 Kings 6, verse 24. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, or Syria, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Well, I'm not so sure that those uh, amounts of money mean anything to you. They don't mean that much to me, but what the, uh, what the writer is saying is that uh, it was a time of great poverty, so the laws of supply and demand took over, and anything, even the most distressing things, uh, sold at a very high price because you just couldn't find anything to eat. Uh, couldn't find anything to plant, couldn't find anything to eat, and it was uh, a, a horrible siege. They had cut off supply to the capital city of Samaria, and they had done it for so long that the people were in a very, very difficult uh, time. And so we continue on, verse 26, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, if the Lord doesn't help you, where can I get help for you? Well, the story goes on to talk about how distressing this time was, this moment was, because the kind of help that the woman needed, she had bargained with a friend, a neighbor, and uh, they had bargained uh, their own children. And the, the times were so difficult that these women had been lowered to offer up their own child uh, to, to be eaten in order to survive. One day one was going to uh, take her child and the other day the other one would be given. And the first day that's what happened, but the second day the woman said, no way, I'm not doing it. And now here is this woman calling out to the king, telling the king demand that she do this to her child, to her son. Well, as you can imagine, the king was, was furious but he had to be mad at something or somebody. Second Kings verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 30. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes, a sign of mourning. As he went along the wall, the, the people looked, and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body, another sign of mourning. He said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So a horrible thing was going on. The Syrians were besieging the capital city of Samaria. There was no food. People were doing horrible things and distressing things. And of course, they go to the king and say, do something about it. And the king has to blame somebody. So who is he going to blame? Of course, the preacher. I mean, isn't that what happens? You blame the preacher when crazy, horrible, terrible things start happening? <laughs> right there with you, Elisha. And so he calls on Elisha, the prophet. Uh, and he says, this is Elisha's fault. And I'm making a vow right now that I promise by this time tomorrow, I will have his head cut off. That's exactly what the king says. 
So in 2 Kings 6, verse 32, Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? One of the great you know, uh, uh, benefits of being a prophet. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. In other words, don't let him in. Don't open that door. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him? There was a whole crew there ready to arrest Elisha and have him put to death. While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. The king said, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Aren't we right there with the king of Israel sometimes? We, we keep expecting God to do something, to deliver us, to act, and, and yet it just doesn't seem to be happening for us. And so we look for somebody to blame, and ultimately the blame comes to the Lord. I'm tired of waiting for the Lord, the king said. Chapter 7. This is a turn in the story. Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a sea of finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And now again, not, not completely understanding the amounts here, but what he's saying is there's going to be so much supply that things are going to be going for next to nothing just in one day. Verse 2 of Second Kings 7, The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. So this officer that was there with the king couldn't believe it and voiced his, uh, his unbelief. And Elisha said, well, I'll tell you, you'll see it happen, but you won't be able to have any of it. And we'll see how that plays out. Now, the next chapter uh, in the same seventh chapter of 2 Kings, 2 Kings 7, verse 3. Now, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. there and we will die if we stay here where there's no food we will die so let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender if they spare us we live if they kill us we die basically what are these lepers saying we got nothing to lose there's no food here we're at the bottom of the food chain lepers even if something did show up so we might as well take our chances with our enemies. I mean, maybe we'll be slaves, maybe, um, maybe we'll be killed, but maybe not. And maybe that they will save our lives and at least we'll be alive. Verse 5, At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian king. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. In other words, the Lord had made it so that they thought that they were about to be attacked and killed. And right then, they didn't have time to clean anything up, pack anything up. They just left to save their lives. And no one knew. No one knew. 
Verse 8, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. They were in hog heaven, literally. <laughs> then they took silver, gold, and, clo and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. They were just ransacking the place, going from tent to tent, eating anything they wanted, drinking anything they wanted, taking anything they wanted, and hiding it. But you can only do that for so long before conscience begins to speak too loudly to be ignored. Second Kings 7 verse 9, Then they said to each other, What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Second Kings 7 verses 9 through 11. They came to realize, hey, what we're doing is not right. And it's, it's not only is it not right, it's not safe or smart because we know, we know that ultimately people are going to find out about this. And then where will we be? But this is a day of good news. Our people have been delivered. There is food here in the camp of the Arameans. We can uh, open up the gates to the walls of our city and do that safely and go out and find supplies and have things brought to us. This is a day of good news, and it's not right for us to keep holding it in. And so as the story continues, they tell the people in the city, and they're very suspicious at first. They're thinking it could be a trap by the Syrians. They have sold, bought these guys off. Um, was trampled. He was at the gate. He saw it all coming, and yet he was trampled to death by the people running out trying to get to sustenance to save their lives. So Elijah's words came true. He saw it, but he was not able to enjoy it. But I want us to focus on what those four lepers said. When they saw everything that was there, and they were taking everything for themselves, and they finally decided, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. And we're holding it to ourselves. We're keeping it in. We have the gospel of peace. And it's a day of good news. And good news is meant to be shared and spread and openly communicated. And yet sometimes here we are keeping it all to ourselves. Well, I want us to look at another story. This one is in the New Testament in Mark chapter 5. And again, just like it, the other one involved these four lepers, it involves a man who has very serious struggles. He's been possessed not just by one demon, but by a legion of demons. Uh, Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and, and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Uh, this man was uh, uh, a mess. He was possessed by a demon. He was running around naked. He was living in the cemetery. He would cut himself with stones. He was so strong that people would try to bind him and the demons would just uh, force the man to break them wide open. 
He was scary, is what he was. He was scary. Mark 5, verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, Mark 5, verse 9, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Well, that's a lot of a lot of hogs, <laughs> and it's not just uh, a loss of of uh, livestock, so to speak. These pigs, and at least we can have one last hurrah to to uh, bother this man and to. Bother Verse 14 of Mark 5. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the... They were the ones who were watching the pigs. And they went and told everyone in town what had happened. Verse 15. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. You know, that, that really surprises us, doesn't it? I mean, they were, they were afraid of him when he was possessed by the demons and he was running around in the cemetery naked and he was busting out chains and he was cutting himself with stones. But now when they come back and they see him there with Jesus clothed, sitting and acting perfectly normal, they're scared to death. They, they realize that as powerful as those demons were, Jesus is a power even greater. And it scared him. Verse 16. Those who had seen it told the people what happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I kind of can't understand that. I would be pleading with Jesus to stay a while and heal some others and help us to make sense of all of this. And accept our worship because you're ob obviously someone far greater than any man we have ever known. And yet they were afraid. And so they pleaded. Never makes anyone try to believe them. They ne he never tries to uh, find his way with them, to force his way upon them. The only thing Jesus does, just like he does, does here, is give them the opportunity to believe. But if they refuse to believe, um, then Jesus will allow that, and he will walk away. And that's what happens here. They plead with Jesus to leave their region. Verse 18 of Mark 5, and this is what I want us to notice. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Here is this man who had experienced the healing of Christ. He's got such a great story to share. 
And wouldn't it be great for him to go wherever Jesus went and, and he could share his own story as Jesus uh, preached about the kingdom of heaven and called on people to repent and have faith in him. That's what we would expect, isn't it? But this is what Jesus tells him in verse 19. Jesus did not let him go with him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis and the ten cities where he was from how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. You know, we would expect, again, we would expect Jesus to um, have this man go with him. And yet, Jesus said no. Instead, what he asked him to do was, I want you to go home. I want you to tell this story, but I want you to tell it in your own home and in your own community. And I do believe that Jesus calls us to do the same thing today. Uh, these four men, these four lepers that we read about in 2 Kings 7, uh, they were told to go back, basically with their own conscience, to go back and tell everyone what they had seen and what they had experienced. And in the same way this man, this man who had been healed of these legion of demons, is told to go back home, go back to your hometown, and tell this story. Yes, tell this story by all means. But you don't have to go, Jesus tells him. You don't have to go with me, jaunting around the world. You can do that. And many are called to do that. And what a great blessing they are. How thankful we are that they would make such a sacrifice. But all of us are called uh, to share the message of Jesus. And most all of us are called to share the message of Jesus with those that are right around us. Those we live with, those that we live around, our neighbors, those we work with, those we go to school with, um, those that are in our family, uh, we're called upon to share that great message, to have feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Remember, that's part of the armor of God, just like the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. How do I do that, Bill? How do I, how do I, how do I share the story of Jesus? And I think you can do it the same way the Apostle Paul did it. Remember in Acts 9, Luke records the story, the narrative, of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Sees Jesus on the way into Damascus to persecute the church. He's blinded. He's led into the city. He prays and fasts for three days. And then, as he's telling the story in Acts 22, Ananias, this Christian man, comes to him and says, Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. And he does. Acts 9 tells us that Saul is baptized after Ananias comes to him. And then he begins preaching the message he had once Why, what are you, why are you doing this? He tells them his story. And it's the story of Christ and the impact he's had on Paul. And I think we can do the same. Here's a short, quick, three-part way to do that. It's not original with me.
but it's something that perhaps you can use to try to help you tell your story and in so doing tell the story the story of Jesus Christ first of all you tell them about your life before Jesus you talk about things before you came to know Christ and then you talk about your conversion experience you tell them here's what happened just like Paul does in Acts 22 and in Acts 26 maybe it's a story about a great message that you heard at church one time and you responded to the invitation and were baptized in the baptistry at that very service had a few decades on you and you were baptized in a creek or a river. Um, it may be that whatever your story is, you can tell that story. And so you talk about your life before Christ and then you tell them about how you came to know Christ. The people maybe that had an impact on you. The messages that really stuck. And, and how you were baptized into Christ. How you made that great confession died to sin, as Romans 6 says, were buried with Christ through baptism into death, and were raised out of that baptism, uh, out of that water to live a new life. And then the third part is you tell about your life since then. Maybe it has some ups and downs, but you talk about how Jesus has been with you, and you tell them that he will be with them as well. He's promised that, and he comes through. And so you can tell the story by telling your story about how things were for you before uh, you came to know Christ. It doesn't have to be anything dramatic. You may have lived a pretty good, normal life then, or it may be something very dramatic, something like this man that was uh, filled with these demons, these legion of demons. Uh, whatever your story is, just share it. And then talk about how you came to know Jesus, how you heard about the message of Christ, how you heard about the response of faith and how you obeyed it. And then tell them about how Jesus has been there with you ever since. This is a day of good news, and yet we're keeping it to ourselves. And that's not right. Like this man beginning at our own home, uh, Luke, as he records in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, his great commission, before Jesus ascended, Jesus said, you, you are to be my witnesses, starting right where you are, here in Jerusalem, for them, wherever you are, for us. And then in the surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria, for, uh, for them, whatever the surrounding regions are for you, and then to the very end of the world. This is where God wants us uh, to share his story. Uh, and we can do that when we share our story. Uh, with our feet fitted, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Um, we can be willing because this is a day of good news. It's not meant to be kept inside. It's meant to be shared. And I hope and pray that all of us will be willing to do exactly that. God bless you through this weekend.